0: Welcome proud members of the present to another episode of the Prime Philosophy podcast. I'm your host Nick Horderbaum and this episode is brought to you by UFF, the firefighter wellness program on a mission to make the best job in the world a healthier one. Go to primelocity.com UFF to get started. Lisa Feldman Barrett is a neuroscientist and psychologist who's been studying the brain and mind for 30 years. She's received numerous scientific awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship in Neuroscience and an NIH Director's Pioneer Award. She is a university distinguished professor at Northeastern University. She's the author of How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain, and her latest book is Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time to be on my podcast today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Did you finally nail decorative pie crust this year?
1: (laughs) You know what? I did much better this year than in past years. I wouldn't say that I've nailed it, but, uh, but I did manage to make one or two pie crusts that you could tell, if you take your glasses off and squint from a distance, you could tell that it was decorative. Yeah.
0: I love the book. Thank you so much for gifting that to me. So the earth was once ruled by creatures without brains and that's a biological statement, not a political statement. Can you unpack this? (laughs)
1: Sure. That was my attempt at being funny. You know, I am the least funny person in my house. I'm I'm very fortunate that my husband and my daughter are really, they have quite um, dry wits and also they are silly, uh, uh, you know, variably. So I'm like the least funny person, but that was my attempt at humor um, basically, if you go back before the Cambrian period in evolutionary time, the creatures who were populating the Earth were all in the ocean, and they did not have um, a brain. They 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 had a very very small clump of cells um, at the at one end, um, not really what we would classify as a brain, and they had very simple um, internal bodily systems. So most of these animals didn't really have, actually none of them had what we would think of as a modern cardiovascular system or respiratory system um, you know, and so on and so forth. And actually, most of the animals didn't even have heads Um, They had no sensory systems to speak of in any kind of sophisticated way. So they were creatures who were, you know, in an environment that they, you know, they didn't really even know they had an environment. They, They were really largely unaware of what was going on around them.
0: In your book, we learned that we only have one brain, not three. And in fact, we've known this three brain model was wrong for over 50 years. So why are some still refusing to acknowledge this?
1: I don't know if people are refusing to acknowledge it as much as I'm not really sure that the science has made its way out of the silo. You know, it usually takes somewhere between 10 to 20 years for research to make it out of one domain of science into another domain of science. And uh, and then, you know, some amount of time to make it out into um, the public awareness. And now things have been sped up a little bit because of social media and because we have a lot more access to one another that, that is published papers aren't the only medium through which we can communicate. So that's sped up communication some. But I would say that the in this particular case, most of the research debunking um, the the three layered brain idea, the idea that you have a lizard brain. And on top of that, you have an emotional brain. And on top of that, you have a rational brain. This idea, um, has been around for many years, but the evidence debunking that view was really sequestered away in literature, the published scientific literature, that's really hard to read. Um, I mean, you know, you have to know something about molecular genetics and, and something about embryology to really read that literature well, I would say. And, um, so, you know, I first talked about this in how emotions are made about the fact that the, that, that view of the brain is wrong. Um, and you know, it's going to take a chorus of books and papers and, and like magazine articles and so on, maybe podcasts in order to get the word out, I would say.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, how do 128 billion individual neurons become a single brain network?
1: Yeah, so I don't know that we know the whole story there, Nick, but we know part of the story. And one way to think about it is this, that these um, 128 billion neurons, cells, give give or take, Um, are not really wired together. They're not soldered together um, in any way. They actually are bathed in a chemical system. So they communicate with one another through chemicals, which we call neurotransmitters or neuromodulators. These are chemicals that allow neurons to um, speak to one another with ease or with difficulty. So the, the chemicals kind of make it easier or harder for neurons to to pass information to one another. And they really knit the brain, they really knit themselves into a single structure that can take on trillions of patterns. Um, So usually when we, um, you know, teach about how, a brain cell, a neuron works, we're, we're usually looking at an individual cell and we, we talk about you know the axon, and the, which is like the tail, and it sends an electrical signal. But we often um, don't spend as much time talking about how one neuron passes information to another. And that turns out to be incredibly important to knitting all of these neurons together into one complex system that can take on trillions and trillions and trillions of different patterns
0: and the biological building blocks of the brain and the man, the manufacturing plan is the same for all species. What differs and makes our brains look different is the timing. Can you tell us more?
1: Yeah, so I wouldn't say for all species. I would say um, just a little bit of uh, um, a course correction there. I would say the what we know is that um, for all mammals who've ever been studied, um so you know rats and cats and dogs and monkeys and anteaters and so on um and humans um that um that the brain is formed with exactly the same set of steps in exactly the same order so when um after a a, a sperm fertilizes an egg you have an embryo and the embryo is producing Cells that will make up the body that will eventually become the creature after it 's born, and that includes the brain, so the embryo um, is is producing neurons and other material to build a brain, and the order in which that happens and the order in which the neurons migrate to the place where they have to be in the embryo and connect themselves up to one another and so on and so forth, all occur in exactly the same order and the genetics suggests looking at the genes within the cells, suggests that this ordering may hold not just for mammals, but actually for all vertebrates, which would include lizards and reptiles and, um, and birds and so on.
0: So just like time under tension causes muscles to grow, you could say the stage that produces neurons in the cerebral cortex allows that area to grow
1: larger. Exactly. And so what turns out that, for example, birds have no cerebral cortex but they have neurons which are the same neurons as the neurons that build our cerebral cortex similarly you can look at a lizard and if you look with the naked eye it's debatable whether or not they it looks like they have a cerebral cortex but if you peer into the neurons and look at their molecular makeup you can see that 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 lizards have the same neurons as we do And it's just that the stage which produces our cerebral cortex runs for longer, so there are more of those cells and brains, you can think of brains as, there's a a saying that comes from the uh, neuroanatomist George Streeter, you know, brains are like companies, they reorganize themselves as they get bigger. So when a stage runs for longer, these 271 stages, which occur in exactly the same order, can, can run for longer or shorter time, producing um, larger or smaller structures.
0: Do we know why that stage lasts longer in humans?:
1: From an evolutionary standpoint, it's always hard to answer with the "why" question, but we can answer the "how" question, and we can also answer the "What is it good for?" question not really so much why so we know something about um about the molecular changes the genetic changes that allow um that um that stage to run for longer and we also know something about the consequence of that stage running for longer um and that's something that i discuss in in a couple of the other lessons because you know we um our the human brain, when, it, when a newborn is born, the human brain has um, many, many, many more connections between neurons than than it will ultimately have. Um, scientists call this exuberance. There's an exuberance of connections. And this really allows the brain to wire itself to the world that it's born into, both the physical world and the social world. So it allows brains to tailor themselves to to the world they're born into. And this is super important because from an evolutionary standpoint, it means that there there are mechanisms that can transfer information from one generation to the next, which are not genes.
0: Our cerebral cortex is unusually large given our overall brain size, or is that just a scale? No,
1: it's actually not. So... It's a little complicated, but I'll say it like this, that as a body gets bigger, a brain gets bigger. Hmm. And when you look at mammals, you can see that relatively speaking, a mammalian brain is somewhat larger than you might expect for the body size of that animal. Hmm. And when you um, look at primates, you can say that that this is also true, Um, but you can also say that um, the cerebral cortex, is um as big as you would expect for a brain of that size so when it comes to humans you know our brain is our brain is much larger given our body size than you might expect but the cerebral cortex is as big as you would expect for a brain of our size okay Um, and so what this means is that that the brain overall our brains overall have gotten relatively bigger which means that you know, as our bodies got bigger, our brains got way bigger than we you know, would have expected for a body of our size. And that's important. That means there's been some kind of special selection on brain size. Um, but our cerebral cortex is just as big as you would expect for a brain of our size. It doesn't really need a special explanation.
0: So elephants are larger, but this doesn't mean that they are more rational or intelligent than us.
1: <laughs> well, if you were just looking at the size of the cerebral cortex, you would imagine that of an elephant, which has a much larger cerebral cortex than we do, um, you would imagine that, um, that, that, you know, the great philosophers of our time w- would have been elephants. And maybe they are, Nick, and we just don't know it. But, um, but what we can say is that, um, relatively speaking, you know, our brains are larger relative to our body size than an elephant. Hmm.
0: Now, little brains wire themselves to the world as babies, our brains form themselves largely with the help of outside stimuli. So how do our brains differ when that outside stimuli is mostly indoor life compared to millions of years of stimuli from nature?
1: Yeah. So this is a really big issue. I think that a lot of people are, are, are kind of concerned about what we know is that, that, you know, brains, little brains and even big brains are, they pick up and bootstrap into their wiring the regularities of what you're exposed to. So as long as little brains have light that strikes their retina, their visual system will develop normally. As long as they have people who are caring for them, making eye contact and and so on, um, singing to them, talking to them, and so on making sure they're fed and that they go to sleep and get enough sleep and so on as long as these things are all happening um you know the brain will probably develop normally but um you know if if you're not if if children if if little kids aren't out playing ball and they're not um you know playing jump rope and they're not running around outside and they're not exposed to a lot of different faces um, from a lot of different people, um, then uh, their brains will prune away the connections that would be good for those that would support those activities. And it's not that they can't relearn them, um, they certainly can. Um, it's just you know if it goes on if it went on for like a decade it would be a problem but probably the short amount of time that this is happening it, it you know any um any consequences probably reversible
0: so it's up to us to create the world that infants wire themselves to any advice on how to grow those brains healthy and whole
1: oh wow well I, there's a lot of advice there um nick i have to tell you um in fact i i wrote something i think it was for cnbc was a list of um, things that you can do with your kids um, to um, to to grow their brains healthy and whole. I mean, I think the the main things um, are common sense. You have to make sure your kids get enough sleep. You have to make sure they eat well. You have to make sure they nutri, n- nutritiously. You have to make sure that you're responsive to them. Not overly responsive, you know, because like one one thing about parenting that's a little challenging is knowing when to step in and and knowing when to step back. Um, But in general, I would say, um, you know, kids need to feel loved and they need to feel supported. And that's not just a feel good statement that actually has biological consequences for brain development. So the psychologist Alison Gopnik has written a wonderful book called the Uh, gardener and the carpenter. And, you know, her argument, which I think makes sense also from a brain um, neuroscience standpoint, is that we really have to um, treat our kids like we're gardeners, not like we're carpenters. We're not trying to build, you know, the perfect uh, cellist or the perfect piano player or the perfect, um, you know, chess player. We really want to be Creating a fertile ground for our children to explore and learn, and um, and um, you know, kind of support whatever grows, basically.
0: I love that, and I'll be sure to link to your article that you just mentioned in the show notes. Now to switch gears, to better understand how the brain makes guesses and then compares them to sensory data, I thought we could use the example of when it's just starting to rain and you feel one drop of water on your skin and you can tell it's going to start to rain. You say we have no wetness sensors on our skin, so how is it that we feel those drops of
1: water? Oh, I know, this is actually so cool. I actually learned about this um, after I wrote the book. So when I wrote Seven and a Half Lessons, I was really writing about the fact that the brain, you know, your brain doesn't detect things in the world like what you see and what you hear and then um, react to them. Actually, your brain is changing the firing of its own neurons to predict what's going to happen next. And it's doing this really automatically. In fact, it's doing it right now. That's how people are understanding the words that I'm speaking. Um, And that's actually how my brain is organizing my muscle movements to speak. It's not how we experience things, but it's actually what happens. And sometimes those predictions are really complicated um, computations. So it turns out that we don't have receptors for wetness in our skin at all. So if that's true, then how do we know when it's about to rain? When we feel a drop um, of rain on our skin, or how do we know uh, when we're sweaty, or how do, when we're in the bathtub or you know in the shower? How is it that we feel wet? Because there are no sensors for feeling wet. And the answer is, um, we have sensors in our skin for temperature and for touch, and the brain does a very complicated kind of you know, um, calculus to, um, uh, create the experience, um, of wetness out of these more basic ingredients. And it's very similar to how your brain creates sensation just in general. So for example, as I talk about the book, you know, when you're thirsty, you drink a glass of water, it takes about 20 minutes for the water to make it into your bloodstream. But you're thirst is quenched almost immediately. How does that happen? Um, Or same thing with coffee, right? You drink a cup of coffee and you feel alert immediately, but it takes about 20 minutes for the caffeine to get into your bloodstream. So what's happening? And what's happening is that your brain is using patterns that it's learned in the past. And in the past, every time you had a glass of water, you felt refreshed. So, or at least most times. And so your brain is making a prediction and it's creating the sensation even before the sense data reaches the brain.
0: This makes me think of sensory deprivation tanks, because normally our brains are tricking us, but we're tricking our brains in these tanks because the water is the same temperature as our skin and the water is still. So our touch sensors aren't firing necessarily. It's completely dark and silent. So the brain has nothing to construct.
1: Well, yes and no. Right. So I don't know about you, but I've been in sensory deprivation tanks and I find them incredibly fascinating for the following reason. So you're partially right. So you go into one of these tanks and you're, you're, um, it's completely black, completely dark. You can't see anything. You put in earphones. You can't hear anything. You step into the, the temperature in the, in the room is your body temperature. You're, you're, you don't have any clothes on to rub against your skin and you step into a pool and you're floating in water that is full of salt. So basically you're suspended. And after a few minutes, you, so you can't hear anything, you can't see anything, there's nothing to smell. You can't feel um, the wetness because you're, um, you know, the te- as, because the temperature, as you said, um, is, um, is n- neutralized. But what you do feel is the symphony of sensations, of changes going on inside your own body. So right now, as we're talking, each of us, and as our listeners are listening, each of us has a virtual symphony, a real drama going on inside our own bodies that we are largely unaware of. And that's a really good thing. Uh, because if we were aware, we probably would not pay attention to anything outside our own skin. Um, philosophers call this tragic embodiment, um, that um, we're largely unaware of what goes on inside our own bodies, um, except under you know certain circumstances. Um, and so when you step into a sensory deprivation tank, after a couple of minutes and you've settled in, And your external senses, which we call exteroceptive senses, are dulled. Your interoceptive senses, the sensations from inside your body, really come to life for you. And you hear um, just a, a symphony. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. I found it a completely captivating experience. The first time I was in a sensory deprivation tank, I thought I wasn't going to last more than 10 minutes. And I was in there for more than an hour and a half.
0: Mm. Yeah, I'd second that. It's almost like that symphony of silence that connects you to your breath in a way that you've never experienced freaks a lot of people out.
1: What freaks one person out is a, you know, an opportunity for curiosity for another person. I mean, I just, I just found it completely fascinating that they're I mean of course I know there's all that stuff going on but I don't sense it on a regular basis and you know just to hear my intestines and my breath and my you know heartbeat and my I mean it's just it was just it was dramatic and 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 really cool actually
0: And knowing our brains predict the future and react to it, can we use this to our advantage when learning? Because it's my understanding that we only learn or change when there's a difference between what our brains expect and what actually happens.
1: One of the things that I think uh, is the really coolest thing about this whole predictive understanding of how brains work, and I should point out that, you know, this is a scientific hypothesis, but it's a hypothesis that's backed up by, I don't know, close to a thousand peer reviewed published papers at this point from many many different literatures that usually don't speak to each other many different domains of science where people don't speak to each other necessarily so it's it seems pretty clear that that a large part of the time this is what your brain is doing changing the firing of its own neurons to prepare you for to prepare you to do something and to prepare you to hear something and see something and so on so an example would be you know if you ever have had a song going through your head that you can't get out of your head, that's an example of your brain changing the firing of uh, its own neurons. Um, uh, That's why you hear a ghostly song in your head, um, because uh, your brain has changed the firing of its own neurons so that you hear something. Um, What's really interesting is that if someone was to play you that song, and your neurons were already firing in a pattern to create the sensations, no new information from that song would make it into your head. Wow. The sense data from the song, you know, the, the changes in, in um, air pressure are sufficient to just confirm the prediction. The neurons are already firing to capture those sensations. So no new information from that song Makes it into your head. So when your brain is predicting well, you are experiencing what philosophers call a controlled hallucination. That your brain created the pattern and the sense data from the world just confirmed it. And it's only in the case where there's something unexpected, that is, something your brain didn't predict or something your brain did predict which failed to occur, that new information um is taken into your brain your brain takes in new information and 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 um modifies um the firing of its neurons based on that new information which we have a fancy name for you know we call it learning
0: wow so if we don't want that song to be stuck in our head all we have to do is play that song
1: yeah actually so i mean um uh, or play another song uh you know, um, that, that will override it. Um, right. So if you play something that's unexpected, that will override the, um, the, the, the song that's playing in your head. Actually, one of the, um, I don't know if any of your listeners suffer from tinnitus, which is, um, you know, um, being plagued. My husband actually suffers from tinnitus and he's a musician and, um, you know, even though he wore earplugs, um, When he was on stage uh, as a a young adult you know he was in rock bands and so on you know didn't protect his ear sufficiently and he has hearing loss um, because of it and he has tinnitus and some people think tinnitus is like a phantom limb syndrome where your brain is still it's filling in the missing um, sense data by changing the firing of its own neurons based on past experience so you know, you hear something that isn't there because your brain expects it to be there. And so it's changing the firing of the neurons and, but there's no sense data coming from that part of your ear anymore to either confirm it or change it. And so it just continues to plague you that the sound.
0: Oh, so it's actually a sound of a missing past.
1: Yeah. It's a sound of a missing past. Exactly
0: why is understanding body budgeting the key to health and longevity and living a meaningful life
1: we can't really say why brains evolved but we know that one of the most important jobs your brain has is to control the systems of your body your cardiovascular you know your heart your lungs your immune system your endocrine system and so on the easiest way to control a body so I'll just say that you know, we think of our brains as important for thinking and seeing and feeling and our, certainly our brains do those things, but our brains do those things in the service of controlling the systems of our body. That's not how we experience um, you know, the, the great joys and uh, sorrows of our, of our lives, but that is actually what's happening um, under the hood. Your brain is the most efficient way to, for a brain to control a body, the systems of the body is predictively. So, your brain is trying to anticipate the needs of your body and attempt to meet those needs before they arise. So, get glucose where it needs to be, get oxygen where it needs to be, um, and so on and so forth. So, for example, cortisol, which a lot of people mistakenly call a stress hormone, is not a stress hormone. And it is a hormone certainly that is secreted during stress, Um, but it's basically a hormone that gets glucose into your bloodstream quickly when your brain believes you have to move really fast. Or if your brain believes you have to learn something new because learning is is expensive metabolically, you need a lot of glucose to do it. And so your brain is trying to get glucose into your bloodstream so it can get to the cells that need it quickly. And so the way to describe this, the the technical term for this is is a mouthful. It's called allostasis. Mm -hmm. But The analogy or the metaphor that I use is body budgeting, that your brain is running a budget for your body. And you know, it's not budgeting money, it's budgeting salt and glucose and water and um, other nutrients and so on. And so you can think about every action you take or every new thing that you learn um, as an expenditure. And you can think about sleeping and, you know eating healthfully and um so on as as deposits so you can use this kind of metaphor and from your brain's perspective it's when we talk about the brain doing decision making making decisions not necessarily consciously but it's deciding you know should it stand you up you know how quickly should you move and you know should you learn this new thing that that you didn't expect or can you safely ignore it Um, as noise your brain is making you know what could be described as economic decisions and we can think about some decisions um, as really you know like investments so for example exercise right it's a big metabolic outlay Um, but as long as you replenish what you've spent these the the hope is that that will be uh, an investment that will pay off in the future in terms of a healthier brain and similarly, when you learn new things, um, even things that are really hard over a long period of time, the assumption is that's a that's an investment that will be where you'll see a return on on that investment um, in one way or another. Um, and if you're spending too much, like you and you're not replenishing, so let's say you're not sleeping very well, or you're spending too much time on social media, or um, you know, I don't know, you're um, feeling, you're, you're worrying about being able to feed your family in a pandemic and keep everybody safe. Um, These things are, you know, expenditures that incur a little metabolic tax. And over the long term, these little taxes add up to a major body budgeting deficit. And that positions you to be vulnerable to, um, developing illness.
0: Right. So persistent uncertainty takes a toll on our mental health and our immune health, which is obviously really evident in this pandemic.
1: Exactly. So persistent uncertainty, um, is really, really, really hard on a human body budget. Um, you know, especially if that uncertainty comes from other humans. Um, so, uh, and oftentimes what people will do, you know, in conditions of persistent uncertainty um, is they'll try to reduce the uncertainty. You're not aware that's what you're doing, but that that is one of the consequences. And so, you know, for example, um, it becomes much harder to talk to people who don't agree with you or who, um, you know, have different views than you um, when Already running a deficit in your body budget because you can't predict what they're going to say or what they're going to do, and that's really hard. Um, And so a lot of people reasonably avoid novelty and uncertainty um, because it makes them feel worse because they're incurring even more of a body budgeting deficit. Um, But the consequences of that for the long term, you know, are not great um, for uh, civil society. So I would say you know the situation that we've been experiencing right now isn't just uh and i i would say the covid situation for sure but also just the political situation and the kind of casual brutality with which people address one another isn't just a civics issue it's not just a crisis in 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 politics it's a it's a it's a probably a public health crisis actually
0: So we have some choice in curating this world by what we expose ourselves to and what we don't. And this is a powerful takeaway from your book. So how do you get the benefits of social learning while reducing the risk?
1: What do you do? Nick, are you an, do you, do you exercise? You lift weights, you run, what do you, yeah, right. Me too. And what do you do before you, um, before you get, get into the gym? Do you drink anything or take anything?
0: Typically just coffee.
1: Okay, so I actually, um, when I was younger, I would just have water. But now that I'm a little older, I usually have a protein shake with, you know, a little bit of um, some kind of carbohydrate, like a banana or some strawberries or something. So I make a protein shake before before I'm going to do a really heavy weightlifting um, routine, for example. So I'm sort of powering up, right? I'm making sure that my body has what it needs in, in order to be able to do what I want it to do. So I power up before I make the big expenditure of you know lifting weights and so on. And I don't know about you, but partway through my workout routine, um, especially if I'm coming close to um, what's called my ventilatory um, threshold, which means I'm um, expelling as much carbon dioxide as I can, um, and I start to build up lactic acid. I start to feel really unpleasant actually. And um, in those moments, I don't stop. I keep going because I understand that, you know, um, like I love the, the Marines, the U S Marines have a saying, you know, pain is um, weakness leaving the body. Mm-hmm. And my, uh, my trainer always tells me that, you know, um, when I get to the point where I'm starting to feel uncomfortable, that's where real change is going to start happening. And so I just push through it and I keep going. And I think this is something that, um, you know, that, um, that marathon runners learn also that when you start to feel unpleasant, it doesn't necessarily mean that something's wrong. It means that you're um, expending a lot of metabolic energy and uh, now's the time to keep going and, but, you know, maybe have some water or, you know, take some deep breaths and so on. So the point is though that you power up and you, before you go and make a big expenditure and you make sure that you get a good night's sleep beforehand. And I would suggest that the same is true. Anytime you expose yourself to information, forage for information, be curious about stuff that um, is really novel and potentially stuff that, you know, you might not like. Um, But it's, it's a, it's, it's not just good for democracy. It's good for your brain. You actually make, you actually cultivate a more flexible brain, which is more resilient um, uh, in the long run. If you expose yourself to material, if you learn things that are not necessarily the things that you, that, you know, confirm the beliefs and so on that you hold dear. So exposing yourself to different ways of living and learning about different ideas other than the ones that you hold dear in a in a way that you know you don't have to buy into them you you don't have to convince anybody of anything but just being curious and learning is actually a really great way to build a resilient brain but like exercise it requires you know um a little bit of forethought and you know you have to you know the two most expensive things your brain can do is move your body and learn something new that is unexpected. So you just have to prepare um, and replenish.
0: So we do have some freedom to hone our predictions and new directions, and some responsibility for the results.
1: Exactly. You know, your the way that your brain runs is it's constantly re-implementing or reassembling past experiences for the purposes of creating. The present, mm-hmm. and it's so you can't really go back and reach into your past and change your past. That's, I mean, that's what we try to do sometimes with psychotherapy. It's just it's really really hard thing to do, and and it doesn't always work. But what you can do is change your present. If you change your present, it means that by cultivating new experiences for yourself, it means that. Um, you are seeding your brain to predict differently in the future. So a way to think about this is that you are continually cultivating your past as a means of controlling your future.
0: One more thing on body budgeting. I'd imagine that things like self-control and resisting temptation, and like you said, a tough workout, making hard decisions, they do deplete our body budget temporarily, but they lead to better predictions tomorrow.
1: They absolutely do. And I'll just say, look, if we were just to simplify things, this is a really kind of cartoon, you know, version, what I'm going to say of what's happening. But if we were to stop time right now, and just peer into your brain, what we would see is that your brain is representing, it has some pattern that it's representing what it believes is going on in your body, and what it believes is going on in the outside world. And so based on this belief, it's going to make a set of predictions about what you're going to do next, what you're going to hear next, what you're going to see next and so on and it's going to start to 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 change its own neural firing to prepare those actions and sensations waiting for confirmation from the world and from your body. So in a very real way your predictions are being controlled to some extent by what's going on inside your body and what's going on outside in the world. Mm. So one way to send your brain down a different path a different trajectory of prediction is to change the environment that you're in so very simply if you want to have self-control and you don't want to eat cookies get the cookies out of your house if you don't want to eat potato chips get the potato chips out of your house if you are um, having difficulty um, with self-control change your environment And you can change your environment by literally physically changing your environment, like getting up and moving to another room or throwing those cookies out. Um, but, uh, but you can also change uh, your environment figuratively by being, um, mindful. Um, so we, know, we hear a lot about mindfulness and I have to say I'm a pretty skeptical person by nature, which is probably why I ended up being a scientist. Um, But um, it it really does work. And the the evidence suggests that it works. And I can say in my own life, I find it really, really helpful. All being mindful means is that you bring into the focus of your attention some features of experience that weren't there before. So for example, right now, are you sitting down now, Nick, or are you standing?
0: I'm sitting, unfortunately.
1: Okay. Yeah, no, me too. A moment ago, the feeling of the chair pressing up against your legs was not in the foreground of your attention, but now that I mention it, is it now something that you can experience? It is. Right, exactly. That's mindfulness, basically. Mm. And so we can do this in lots and lots and lots of different ways. Just practice it. Even when we don't need it, it's like building a muscle, basically. If you practice doing it when you don't need it, then you'll be more automatic at doing it when you do need it.
0: We are the architects of our own experience. Now, do we have direct access to actual reality or is it all just a projection or a hallucination?
1: Actual reality, remember, infant brains wire themselves to their world, right? So actual reality is wiring your brain. It's wiring your brain. You know, if your retinas aren't stimulated by light from the world when you are a newborn, your brain will not develop the ability to see properly. And some scientists believe now that the evidence suggests that myopia that is being short-sighted may have something to do with stimulating the retinas of babies during the night when they should be sleeping, like with a nightlight, for example, yeah. or by, you know, um, being on, um, uh, um, you know, screens really to, for for too many hours in the day that really screws up your circadian rhythm um that this can also lead to 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 real difficulty so i guess my my point is that the way your brain works you is a controlled hallucination um, if it's working in a neurotypical way that's what your experience is but where does that hallucination come from it comes from the world around you basically
0: yeah, I like that. I was just reading the Bhagavad Gita and in it it says the world we think the world is an illusion, but really it's the sense of separateness that's the illusion.
1: Exactly. That's exactly right.
0: And like Neo in the Matrix, are our brains so fast at predicting that we are mistaking our movements for reactions? Yes.
1: Yes. That is the other thing which I find just I I you know, I'm a scientist. I I can see the evidence. I um, but I'm convinced by the evidence. But it, it boggles my mind because I, I have no awareness of this in everyday life, right? Which is that typically the way we we experience ourselves in the world is that we see something or hear something and then we react to it. So um, so sensation comes first and movement comes second. But actually, in your brain, movement is being prepared first, and sensation is being prepared as a consequence of the movement that's being predicted. And this is because it takes more time to execute a motor action than it does to um, create a sensation. And I'll just say that um, for anyone who finds this um, not believable, we would not have baseball or football or tennis or any other ball game if uh, brains didn 't predict in this way it just there isn't it there just isn't physically enough time to see a ball and catch it uh bad at you know swing a bat at it or or a racket or whatever. The whole thing um only can occur because brains are predicting
0: you 're predicting the previous pitches and how they how you would hit them because you can 't hit a hundred mile an hour fastball like that.
1: Yeah. So when you're, you know, when a batter, I mean, I have to say, I live in Boston, you know, uh, the Red Sox are here. It's probably blasphemous what I'm about to say, but I'm really, you know, I grew up in Canada, so I'm more of a hockey girl probably than I am a a, a baseball girl. And I did not find baseball all that interesting for the longest time until I learned about um, prediction. And then baseball games became absolutely fascinating to me because It's like a game of wits between the batter and the pitcher. And the batter's brain is predicting what the pitcher is going, where the ball is going to be in a second from now, based on what he knows about this pitcher, but also the, the air conditions, the weather conditions, and also the conditions of his own body. So your brain is always predicting what's Happening in your body, your brain doesn't know what's happening in your body. It only has access to the sensations that come from your body, which are the outcomes of some set of causes. And so your brain can guess at the causes, but it doesn't really know for sure. So when you have a tug in your chest, you know, what is it? It could be one of many things, and your brain has to make a guess. And so, based on, you know, the batter's brain is basically guessing what's going how much energy is available in the muscles and you know what's the you know air like and the temperature like and what's this pitcher like to do likely to do and based on all of this the brain's doing this really complicated calculation and it's changing the firing of its own neurons to predict where the ball is going to be in a moment from now and that's where the brain predicts the, the batter to swing at not where the ball is the batter doesn't wait to see the ball The batter is um, predicting where the ball is going to be and preparing the swing for that spot. And all of this is happening in the blink of an eye and completely outside the awareness of the batter.
0: That's so cool. Science does make sports better. Now, switching gears here, can you talk about co-regulation and how our brains secretly work together with other brains and influence each other without us knowing?
1: Sure. So we are social animals and we evolved. That's one of our major Um, adaptations as a species. We, we, we don't just make deposits and withdrawals into our own body budgets. We figuratively speaking, um, make deposits and withdrawals into each other's body budgets. And so uh, we, you know, the, the, the best thing for a human um, body budget or human nervous system is another human. Uh, And the worst thing, for a human nervous system, a human body budget, can often be another human. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we influence each other in all kinds of ways, including the words that we speak to one another. And this is something that people find, a hard, they have a hard time um, believing sometimes, but they actually use this uh, every day of their lives. Every time you send a text to someone you know, um, you, uh, every time you send a kind word or, or an insult, you are um, influencing that person's breathing, that person's metabolism, that person's heart rate, right? If I want to soothe my daughter or my husband or my friend who, a close friend who lives halfway around the world, I can just text three little words and change what's going on inside their own bodies. So the point is that for like it or not, believe it or not, doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, it just is is happening. We um, have more responsibility for the wellness, the well-being of other people around us. And we live in a, a culture that values individual rights and freedoms. And that is a conflict that we have to deal with. And we deal with it by being responsible for the consequences of what we say and do. That's what you that's what responsibility is the cost of having freedom. And this is something that I talk about um in um in the book in seven and a half lessons. I believe it's lesson uh five.
0: This insight into words and verbal aggression and the link to chronic stress and chronic stress and disease on a practical level has real financial and social costs.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, I will say that sometimes people don't react well to me raising this issue and, um, you know, they sometimes act as if I'm actually being unpatriotic just by raising the issue, but I'm just being a scientist and a job of a scientist is to often bring scientific findings and um, to the public and inviting the public to think about the consequences of those findings, um, whether whether you like it or not, like whether you like the findings or not, is kind of irrelevant um, to to the fact that they exist. And so I, what I would suggest is that, you know, it's not that we have to agree with everyone. It's not that we have to be nice to everybody all the time. It's not that we, you know, it's not that we can not have debate or conflict, but the way that you interact with other people has a consequence on their physical health in the moment and over time. Um, you know, a casual brutality in, in cultural discourse, you know, can have an effect, a longer term effect on, on the health and well-being of people in a culture that it bears a cost. And you might not see the cost right away and you might not like the fact that there's a cost and you can even deny that there's a cost, but that won't make that cost go away.
0: We are free to speak, but not free of the consequences and the responsibility. And then, a question that I like to ask everybody at the end of the podcast if you could have a drink with anyone in history, who would you choose and why?
1: When I was thinking about how I would answer this, I, I would like to, to, I was thinking, well, what I would really like to do is to be around people in prehistory, actually, like modern humans, like 300,000 years ago, um, or um, maybe. Um, uh, one of the hunter gatherer tribes to see for myself, whether things were more really egalitarian between men and women, um, which is what the scientists are now finding. So I, if I had one burning thing that I would like to experience, that was, that would probably be it. Um, but if I had to choose a, a human that who, where, you know, we were talking about, um, a human that I where drinks and coffee had already been invented. Um, then I suppose it would be um, Charles Darwin.
0: Oh, I love that answer. Okay, Lisa, if people want to find you, they can follow you on social at LFeldmanBarrett. They can go to lisafeldmanbarrett.com. I'll have links to your books and the show notes. Anywhere else you want people to go to connect with you?
1: No, those are really the best places. Um, I also have an academic website, but um, that's where all the uh, peer-reviewed scientific papers are. are. But my public website, lisafeldmanbarrett.com, has... um, has other podcasts and um, articles I've written for other magazines and newspapers like the New York Times and talks I've given and so on. So there's a lot on there for free that people can avail themselves of.
0: Well, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much again for the conversation.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you again for having me on your podcast.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media at Primalosophy. And if you want to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Sunday Goods, you can find the link in the show notes. Shakoba.